If you were here last week or if you get our emails, you saw that we kicked off something called the 20 Days of Praying Together. And the entire point of this is Monday through Friday uh, for the the next four weeks. Now we're going into our third week or our second week of doing this. Uh, But four weeks total, 20 days to be able to just read a passage out of God's word together. We're all reading the same passage to pray something specific for ourselves and then over our church. And it has been incredible. We've only been doing this for five days. And yesterday we sent out a text message um, just looking for some responses. The, the message was, hey, if, if God has been speaking to you, if God's been moving in your life through these prayers of unity, we'd love to hear from you. And we were bombarded with text messages yesterday. It took us a while. It took me a while to go through like, man, that's awesome. Thanks so much for texting us. Oh, that's great. We're praying for that too. And I just wanted to share just a few um, so you know the impact that prayer has and the impact it has when we are united, when we're unified in praying. Uh, one person texted back, the daily scripture has led my husband and I to connect over God's word each evening. I love that. We're seeing this happen in couples. One person said, last Sunday was the first time I went to local church and the first time I've been to church in a very long time. I can say, I, I can say that I have felt more peace this last week and I felt the Lord moving in my life um, now that I'm getting these prayers and going to church and get excited knowing everyone's reading them and I can feel their unity. This person wrote, the Lord has brought me much closer to him this week, and I didn't even think that was possible. I've been looking at the scriptures with new eyes. This person said, it's, nice reset, it's a nice reset during the day to get a Bible verse in prayer, to know I'm praying with so many others in our church, and for our church is an awesome feeling. Love this one. Uh, looks like this was from a student. Uh, said that God has felt more present. The text would come in right as I walked into math, and it feels like he has, a, it feels like he has said that he sees me. I love those. I love those. And there's countless others of, of what happens when we say, God, I'm going to pray specifically, but I'm also going to pray with one another. So can I just say thank you for being part of that? If that is new news to you and you're like, I wasn't here last week, we haven't heard about this. Well, there it is. Text local to that number 77411. What that does is that opts you in. And then we are sending out a text message every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. There's a Bible verse. There's a quick thought. And then there's, here's what we can pray for together. We're doing that each week for 20, 20 full days as we go through this, this Bible teaching series and this idea of unity. So uh, before we jump into today, today's teaching, let's stop, let's pause, and let's pray, and let's do that together. God, we come before you as a collective body, as your children, as a family, as your church, saying, God, we are ready to hear from you. So God, would you do just that through your Holy Spirit? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you challenge us, convict us, encourage us, move us, and push us to take next steps towards you? As we discuss and talk about unity and God, your plan for unity, not ours, but yours, would we approach unity with an open hand? God, what do you want to teach us? What do you want us to do? How do you want us to pursue unity? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, it's cold, it's rainy, it's still winter, so I'm going to get you guys moving. We're going to play a game. I have a youth ministry background, so this is where you see some of your pastor's youth ministry come up. So I'm going to give a statement, and if that statement is true for you, you would like, yes, that's me, that's, that's me, I agree with that, then you are going to stand up. If that is not you, if you do not agree with that, then you're just going to stay seated, all right? So we're going to start with a really easy one. I went to church today. 
There you go. See how this is going to work? Good job. We all, if nothing else, we all have something in common. All right, here's the next one. This is going to get a lot of you sitting down. I am a coffee drinker. I'm a coffee drinker. So if you are not a coffee drinker, you need to sit down. We're going we're gonna to go a little deeper. Not just I'm a coffee drinker, and these are all true about me. I am a black-only coffee drinker. <laughs> Thank you. The rest of y'all sit down. <laughs> That's how you drink coffee. It doesn't even matter if it's good coffee or not. All right, here's the next one. Here's the next one. I am a beach person. I love sun. I love sand. I love ocean. Send me to the beach. There's all my beach people. How many of you have a 30A sticker on the back of your car? I see all of you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so beach people, good. All right, I have a pet dog. Who else has a pet dog? I don't say that with a lot of enthusiasm, by the way. That's a lot of dog. How many of you, no, I'm not gonna ask that question. Sorry, scratch that one. We're not gonna ask that one at all. All right, here's this one. Here's this one. I am not originally from Georgia. So you, oh man, a lot of out of towners. Some of you aren't sure. Some of you need to call mom and dad and say, where was I born? I saw a lot of up and down on that one. Not a hard question, not a hard question. All right, here's my last one. These are, we're gonna decide, we're gonna discover who my people are in this next one. I've talked about this before, right? I will willingly and enthusiastically go out of my way to go to Bucky's. Thank you. There we go. There's my people right there. I love it. Just out of curiosity, did anybody stay standing for all of those? Anybody? Anybody? There's a couple. That's great. You are just like me. I'm really sorry. We obviously have a lot in common. Well, a few of you, we have a lot in common. It's fun though, isn't it? When, when you talk about things that you have in common, with other people, something naturally happens. There's like this natural bond that begins to take place just because you have something in common with other people. Just because we like to go to Bucky's, it's like we're a pack now and we love Bucky's and we will talk about Bucky's and afterwards you're gonna come out here and you're probably gonna tell me about all the different Bucky's you've been to because we have something that unites us. We have something in common. Now that's great when that's the case, but what do we do about all y'all that sat down for half of that time? Like, if you don't have things in common with me, how do we begin to have unity? Let me throw this up here, and I want you to take a look at this statement. We're going to talk through it a little bit. Unity happens naturally because of commonalities, but unity happens intentionally because of sacrifice. Now, let me unpack that just for a quick second. Unity happens naturally because of commonalities. It's just that. All the coffee drinkers, we have something in common. All of those that uh, moved outside of, moved here from somewhere else. Like there's something that just unites us just because we have a common bond. The problem though is we are called to have unity outside of commonality. So if that doesn't happen naturally, we have to look at how to do it intentionally. Unity happens intentionally and here's the cost of unity is sacrifice. It requires sacrifice if you are going to build unity, not just have it because you have something in common, but if you're going to truly pursue unity in a marriage, in a family, in a job, in a workplace with your job environment, in our community, most certainly in our church. You're going to hear me talk a lot about unity within our church today, but this is going to apply in so many different areas with all your different relationships. And if you want to have unity, you cannot just rely, we cannot just rely on what we have in common. 
Like take church for an example, right? This is not a social club, right? Church is not a bunch of people that gather together because we have a common interest or a common opinion or a common skill. No, like it's actually pretty fascinating that all of us would show up in this room together at the same time. Different backgrounds, different histories from different places, different jobs, different skill sets, different personalities. Like there's no reason that this room should be united in anything because of all of our differences, because of how we don't have a lot in common. But that's what's beautiful about the church. The church is called to be united based on one thing, one thing alone. Not anything else really matters. It's one thing. That's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 for our entire time. If you've got a Bible, be there. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 10. Um, you know the phrase like wringing a towel out, right? You've seen that happen. Like we're going to kind of do that with Colossians 3. We're going to go real slow through Colossians 3. There's a lot in here. We're not going to bounce around. We're just going to go real slow because you're going to see what Paul's trying to get at in regards to unity within, specifically in this context, in the church. So Colossians chapter 3, a little background here. If you read earlier on in chapter 3, uh, Paul gives a lot of things that you're supposed to get rid of. He says, take these things out of your life. Get rid of these things. And he gives a long list. We're going to pick it up when he starts talking about what we are to do, what life in the church and life within a Christian, uh, in a, as a Christian looks like. So Corinthians, uh, Colossians, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul tells us, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Real quick, the word learn's important. This isn't just something that happens overnight. You have to learn to become more like him. You have to learn to grow with him. So we learn to become more like him. Verse 11, in this new life, so this is what we live in now, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. It doesn't matter what your differences are. It doesn't matter what your background is. Look at this. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. That's what unites us. The intent of church is a group of believers, a group of people that gather together with a ton of differences, but with one thing we do have in common our love of Jesus, our belief in Jesus as the Christ, God's one and only son. And because of what he did on the cross, he took our sins away as far as the east is from the, the west. He died, was buried, was raised again. And when he defeated both sin and death, he gives us freedom from both, freedom from sin and death. That's what we have in common. We can disagree on a lot of things, but Paul tells us if you want to be united, you have to be willing to get to that statement that Christ is all that matters. We could spend a lot of time finding divisions and, and reasons to be disunified, but we only need one to be united. Intentionally, we choose to say this, that Christ is all that matters. Now Paul's gonna get into a, so here's what that begins to look like. So if you are part of a church and you say, yes, Christ is all that matters, that new life that he referred to here, he's going he's to help us understand what that looks like. Now, notice real quick, he said earlier, he said, put on your new nature. That is a phrase that we are going to see throughout this section. 
Paul uses this idea of not a to-do list of do these things. He's using this phrase of put this on, like you wear these things. So pay attention to his language. It's very intentional as we're gonna see. Verse 12, here's what this new life looks like where we are united around one thing, Jesus. Verse 12, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves. There's that idea of putting something on. Here's his first list. Clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, that's compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Hold up there for a second. Let's talk about those five different things. We are called to clothe ourselves with those, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and, and making sure that these are not just things we do. Like I said, this is not a, a to-do list. It's not a checklist. These are things we wear. These are things that we put on, characteristics we put on. Now, let's talk about that, the difference there between here's what we do as a to-do list and things we wear. His word for clothing here is super smart, because just let's talk through that for a second. When, when you wake up in the morning, you probably put on clothes first thing, right? That's one of the first things you do. So for him to use this idea of clothing, he's saying, you're gonna do this every single day because you wear clothes every day. You're gonna do this at the very beginning of each and every day. It's one of the first things that you do in regards to clothing. Clothing also prepares us to go out into the world. You put on different clothes this morning because it's cold and rainy today versus if it was warm and sunny. So clothing has a way of preparing us for what we are gonna walk into outside of our home. Paul's saying, when you wear these, you're preparing yourself for what you will encounter throughout the day. Clothing is very visible, if you haven't noticed this. You can tell when someone's wearing clothes and when they're not wearing clothes. <laughs> it's obvious, you don't have to guess. You're like, mm, they're wearing clothes, right? It's very obvious when you're wearing these things. And here's the other last, the last part on clothing. It's never an accident. You don't just stumble around, whoa, I just accidentally got dressed this morning. No, you were intentional. You were thoughtful. What am I going to wear? You went to your closet. Some of you a lot, this is a process that takes a lot longer than others of you. Some of you might need to take a little bit more time in this process. You look in the closet and you decide, what am I going to put on today? So Paul's use of the word clothing is extremely important. He says, this isn't just something you do. This isn't just a checklist. You're gonna do this every day. It's one of the first things that you do. You're gonna be thoughtful. You're gonna be mindful because it is gonna be obvious whether you are wearing these things as a Christian or not. So let me talk through these just real quickly. If you wanna write them down, if you wanna take notes, I wanna give you a little commentary, <clears throat> excuse me, a little commentary on what each of these five pieces of clothing, uh, what they look like. That first one, uh, in my version, uh, in my translation, it says tenderhearted mercy. Your translation might say compassion. And if you've been around me long enough, you know this part's coming. It's my favorite Greek word. Those of you that have been here long enough, you know this. What is that word for compassion? Oh, we're getting it. My goal, when I retire at like the age of 90, I pray my church can all say that word. Splagnitsomai. Man, just come on. I know you want to say it. Let's do it. It's great if you have a head cold like me. Splagnitsomai. That word, as we talked about before, it literally means from the inwardmost parts. This is not just nice. This is not just kind. We're going to talk about kindness in a second. It's so much deeper. It's literally your bowels. So when you see someone that's hurting, you hurt. When you see somebody suffering, you have splagnitsomai and you 
suffer, you hurt on their behalf. It's compassion, co-passion, co-suffering. You hurt with other people, you suffer with other people, you celebrate with other people. That's what we put on. When we walk out into our world and we want to have unity, this again, this is what you wear in order to have unity. With all the differences, it requires us to have compassion. What does it look like for you to begin to have more compassion in your relationships where you desire to see unity? It talks about kindness. We mentioned this last week. Notice a lot of these tie into the fruit of the Spirit as well. Kindness, the idea of being kind means I'm giving something up to help you. It's truly being helpful. I'm adding value, which means I'm probably going to give up some of my time. I'm going to give up maybe some of my resources. I'm aware of a need that you have, and I am going to be kind and help you meet that need. So I'm aware of other people's needs, and I'm willing to actually do something about it in a tangible way. Humility, huge theme in Christian living, is I become lower so something or someone else can be lifted up. So to have humility in a relationship, we talk a lot about our humility underneath God, but our humility in relationships is I lower myself so that I can serve you. I lower myself so that you can be taken care of. I will put myself at a disadvantage so that you can have an advantage. Less of me and more of someone else. I put my desires on hold so that your desires can be focused on. The spotlight goes off of me and it goes on someone else. That's humility. Gentleness. Let's talk about gentleness. Man, this is, this is huge. And I think we often misunderstand the, the depth of gentleness. Oftentimes we think of gentleness as just like soft and, you know, quiet. Like, and that's, there's an element of that to it. But gentleness, the intent is to be viewed and read in the context of opposition. Again, we are talking about the need for unity where Christ is all that matters. So gentleness is required when you are in opposition. You know what feels really, really good when you're in opposition? Just blowing your top. Right? That's what feels good. When, when you're opposing somebody, when you have an enemy, or maybe it's not even just an enemy, it's a disagreement where you and someone else are on different sides of an opinion, different sides of a preference, different sides of anything. When you are on opposite sides with somebody, you just have this in you because I have it too. It feels good to just lose it. It feels really good in the moment, doesn't it? Where I'm just gonna say what I wanna say and I'm not gonna hold anything back. No filters, I call it like I see it. And we, we tend to cause harm in that moment. Gentleness is showing restraint in the midst of opposition. That's the heart behind gentleness. Restraint in opposition. Gentleness would say, what it would look like to wear gentleness is, even though we disagree, I can be calm. Even though we don't see eye to eye, I can still be respectful. Even though you are absolutely wrong, I will listen. That's the hardest one, by the way. Gentleness requires us to have self-control, to show restraint, even in the midst, especially in the midst of opposition. The last one is patience. I'm going to teach you another Greek word if you don't know this one. It's two parts make up this one word, patience. I'm going to teach it to you. Here's the first part. Macro. Say macro. Thumia. Right, so you might have guessed it already. This is where patience comes from. So macro means what? Like, like big, large, right? Thumia, heat. So literally, if you were to say, what is the definition according to the original language for patience? Literally, it would say, I can take the heat for a long time. I love that. Macro thumia. I have patience 
which means I, I, I want this to be over, but I will endure it. It might be difficult, but I will continue to walk alongside this person. Patience requires endurance. Now, when we think of all five of those, there's something that kind of ties them all together. If you desire unity, again, that's the whole point of what we're looking at here from Paul's letter. If you desire unity, there must be sacrifice for these to be present. Let me help you understand. So compassion, let's take compassion for an example. If you want to have unity in your marriage, it's going to require you to be compassionate, to have compassion. If you're going to have compassion, then there's things you cannot have. There has to be a sacrifice. Comfort, for example. You cannot have full compassion while holding on to your comfort. Those cannot coexist. You have to be willing to give up, sacrifice your comfort so that you can then co-suffer with someone. Does that make sense? Gentleness, like we said, it's a whole lot easier and it feels so good to just say whatever you want to say. But it requires sacrifice of that instant gratification. It just feels good to just get that off my chest. It requires us to sacrifice maybe what we want to say to have gentleness be evident. So let me ask the question. And I'm going to have three questions as we go through this section here. What will you sacrifice for the sake of unity? If you have a relationship that you'd say, Brian, I mean, if we were honest, this relationship does not have a lot of unity. We're divided. There's a lot of disunity. I would, do, I would send you to this list. It's like, tell me which of these are not present. Which of these are not being put on? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Which ones of those are not obvious? And then the next question is, so what do you need to sacrifice so that they are? What do you need to give up for the sake of unity? When we go to the store, parents, you'll relate to this. Uh, when we go to a store, you know, the big checkout lines or checkout lanes over at like Walmart or Kroger, wherever we're at. Man, I've got, if, if anybody's in corporate with Kroger and Walmart, I have a huge complaint. Because every time we go through these checkout lines, do you know what's right next to all the checkout lines? All the junk. It is all the junk. Things that are just wasteful spending. And it's food and snacks and like, like lighters and batteries and little flashlights and these junky little toys. And of course, all three of my kids are just like over here picking all this stuff up. Can I have this? What about this one? Oh, I want this one. This one's only $3. Like they want all of this stuff. And now my answer is no, 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 no. I got so sick and tired of saying no, I changed my approach. So when we go through that checkout line, I know it's coming. They start asking, hey, can I have this useless piece of plastic? You know what my answer is? Of course, absolutely, you have to pay for it. <laughs> they work hard. They do. They have chores around the house. They do some other things. They, they, they raise their money. They put in their little cash box. And so I'm like, absolutely, you are welcome to buy that piece of junk, but it comes out of your cash box. Oh. <laughs> it's amazing how quickly those desires change. So what they have to do at a young age is say, here's what I want. Oh, it's not worth the cost. So in your relationship and us as a church, if we truly desire unity, not just say we want it, if we truly desire unity, the cost is sacrifice. And I hope and pray that we are willing to pay the cost for the sake of unity. And marriages and families, our community, our church, 
There has to be sacrifice if you want to intentionally have unity. So that's what we put on. Now, it's interesting, Paul groups some things in in a very specific order. So those first five, then he kind of turns a little bit of a corner and he points to some very specific actions. There's three of them. So based on what you put on, those are kind of heart conditions, right? Your compassion, that's internal. Kindness is mental. I'm aware I'm gonna help with somebody. Humility, like those things are more heart conditions. But then he points to verse uh, 13 and now he says, so here's where those lead you. Look at these. So make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, here's the word again, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together, I love this part, in perfect harmony. It's a beautiful picture of unity. Harmony, if you know anything about music, it doesn't mean everybody's the same. Harmony means different parts that work together. But that's a picture of unity. So it's like, so based on your humility and your gentleness, your patience, your kindness, based on your compassion, that will move you to make allowance for each other and their faults, to forgive one another, and above all, to put on love. Let me talk about those three actions for a moment. Make allowance for one another. Uh, Another translation uses this phrase, and I love it, to bear with one another. It almost sounds like just to put up with each other, right? There is an element of that right? People are not perfect. None of us are perfect. And yes, if you desire unity, it's going to take you being willing to, I'm going to have to put up with some of your quirkiness. I'm going to have to put up with some of your offenses. I'm going to have to put up with your imperfections. The word that we use a lot around that idea is grace. It's making space for grace. What does that look like in your marriage, in your home, at our church? Right? We believe the best in people, but at the same time, again, we are all imperfect. We are going to disappoint one another. We are going to offend one another. So can we make space for grace? Where when somebody does offend you, not saying it doesn't hurt, not saying it was right, but you have space for grace. Well, they don't deserve that grace. You're absolutely right. That's the definition of grace. Grace is not fair. And if you are trying to have complete fairness, you will not find unity. It cannot happen. Sacrifice is not fair. Grace is not fair. Even this next section that tells us to forgive. Look, forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you. That's why you forgive. We don't forgive because it's deserved. We do not forgive because of any other reason other than I've been forgiven, so I'm going to forgive. You have been forgiven, so you must forgive. We forgive not based on their offense. We forgive based on God's love and forgiveness of us. So because of that compassion and gentleness and patience, now we begin to make space for grace and we make sure we remember we've been forgiven. And then above all, verse 14, above all, clothe yourselves and love. If you've been around church a while, you know that there's another Greek word. You're learning a lot of Greek today. Anybody know what this one might be? There's a bunch of different versions. Which one do you think this might be? What is it? Agape love. Yes, agape love is a very specific kind of love that's not I love pizza. That's not the kind of love that he's talking about here. He's saying love as in a covenant love, a committed love, an unconditional love that says I love you even when you offend me. I love you even when you unintentionally hurt me. So I'm going to make space for grace and I'm going to choose to forgive because you have forgiven me. So here's the question. Is my love greater than their and fill in the blank with their offense? 
Is my love greater than their hurts to me? Is my love greater than their words they said to me they shouldn't have said? Is my love greater than what they did or didn't do that offended me? Because if it is, if our love is greater, just like God's love is greater than anything we did to offend him and could do, because his love is greater, there's space for grace, like we said, and there's room to forgive. Is your love greater than anything that they could do to offend you? That's where we will begin to see unity uh, grow. Verse 15, this is when Paul, then he says, so here's what you put on. Here's the actions associated with it. And then he really just pulls it all together and says, so here's how this is going to work. Again, he's talking to an early church with a lot of people that are very different. That's what we read in the first section. So how is this all going to work? Okay, so I'm going to put on the humility. I'm going to put on the compassion. I'm going to make sure I make space for grace. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to love. But, but how is this going to work every single day? And that's what he begins to share here. And I love his language. Verse 15, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as, here's the, what the picture looks like for unity. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Real quick, you see the word peace thrown in there a bunch. This is not peace as in the way that our world would define peace. That worldly definition of peace is the absence of conflict. That's not what Paul's talking about here. This is a peace that comes from unity in Christ. That's the difference. So make sure we're clear. This does not mean, oh, they always get along and sunshine rainbows and never argue. No. Peace in the midst of difficulty. Peace in the midst of misunderstandings. Peace in the midst of conflict. Because it is a peace that we all say, you know what? It's what we said earlier. Nothing else matters because Christ is all that matters. Now, I think it's interesting, this word rule here. You ready for another Greek word? I don't know how to pronounce this one, so I'm going to skip it, but I'll tell you what it means. That idea of rule literally means to sit as an umpire. How's that for talking about unity? So basically, if we were to read this the way it was originally uh, written, it would have said this. It would have said, let the peace that comes from Christ be the umpire in your heart. You gonna watch the Super Bowl today? Got a couple umpires in there. I don't care. The Bengals lost a couple weeks ago, so I don't even know, didn't even know the Super Bowl was on. And you're wearing a shirt front and center. There's the Eagles fan right there. Whatever. Don't care. Anyway. So you're gonna watch the game today, and you're gonna see one team versus another team, and then you're gonna have the umpires, the officials, the referees in the middle. And in any sporting game you've ever seen, you know what I've never seen in my entire life? I've never seen one team or one player commit a foul or a penalty and say, whoa, 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 hang on guys, wait, wait, wait. Did you just see what I did there? I am so sorry, that one's on me. Hang on, let's go ahead, I'll call the penalty, I'll throw the flag, this one's on me. I'll give you a few extra yards because, because I know what I did was wrong. Sound good? All right, let's restart the play. My fault, guys. That's never in the history of sports happened. Instead, do you know what happens? There's a blatant foul, and you see this. <laughs> and then they go up to the official, and they argue their case. Well, did you see this, and you missed that, and where are your eyes? I mean, there's just like, it goes on and on and on. In opposition, which happens when you get more than one person together, in opposition, this person and this person, unfortunately, want what's best for themselves. So we need an umpire. We need an umpire that's not biased. We need an umpire that doesn't take sides. 
We need an umpire that's telling us what's right, even when we don't want to hear it, even when we don't see it. So it's the umpire that calls the shots. So in our relationships, in our church, in your families, in your marriage, you do not get to make the call. According to scripture, it is the peace that comes from Christ that rules your heart, that makes the call, that calls the fair and the foul, the right and the wrong, the do's and don'ts, not you. We do not get to make that call. So just imagine when you're having a conversation, conversation with somebody, I want you to imagine Jesus as the umpire looking over your shoulder, just like he would be calling balls and strikes, right, looking over your shoulder, and you're standing there and you're getting ready to just say this thing that you've been waiting to say, and then you got the umpire right here saying, nope, nope, you're not going to do that one. Nope, that's not going to lead to unity. But I really want to. Not about what you want. I'm the umpire. I get to make the call. Wrong. So here's the question. Will my words and actions promote peace and unity? That's what the umpire is asking. Is what you're about to do, is that going to lead to unity or not? Is that going to lead to the peace that we're reading about here or not? Will my words and actions promote peace and unity? And if the umpire says no, then we have to sacrifice. And we go back to what we read at the beginning. I need to have compassion. I need to have humility. I need to put on gentleness. I need to put on macro through Mia and endure the heat for just a little bit longer. I need to put on kindness. And maybe I need to help them because they're probably going through something. Do you see what just happened there? Because the peace of Christ is the umpire and rules our heart, it reminds us what we have to sacrifice. Unity requires sacrifice. It will not happen on accident. We have a lot of things that we can have in common, and that will last for a little bit. But like Paul says, Christ is all that matters, and that's what we are to be united in. There's one last part that Paul mentions here. I don't want to overlook it. It's really short. Out of everything we've talked about, this one almost feels like just a little tag on. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And here's the last part of what he said in verse 15. And always be thankful. Thankfulness has a lot to do with unity. A lot to do with unity. Show me a group of people that are united, united in Christ, and you will find a lot of gratitude. But you can be united about, around a lot of things. We talked about that last week. Thankfulness for a Christian keeps our eyes focused on Jesus. Because even in the midst of everything we don't have, we're thankful for what he has done for us. Even all the things that aren't working out the way that I want it to, my eyes are on Christ and I'm thankful that he's with me. Thankfulness in the life of a Christian is us keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. When we're not thankful, do you know where that leads? Complaining. When you're not thankful, then you have something to complain about. And you know what happens when we begin to complain? Our eyes go from Jesus onto the complaint. And our eyes have shifted. And we've lost our focus. Anytime you catch yourself complaining, I promise you, your eyes are not on Jesus. I'm guilty of that as well. Anytime I begin to complain, I know my gaze has shifted 
towards a complaint versus Christ. And when that happens, unity begins to fall apart. So if we, let me talk to us as a church, if we as a church desire unity, regardless of all of our differences, regardless of anything that could, and maybe according to the world, should divide us, we're united because Christ is all that matters. So we wake up every day and we put on things that require sacrifice. And because of those sacrifices and because of the sacrifice Jesus has made for me, we make space for grace and room for forgiveness. We put on a kind of love that is not contingent on the other person deserving it. And we let Jesus call the shots in our lives. The goal is for us to be united together with Christ, which means he calls the shots. And we're thankful. We have a lot to be thankful for. Constantly, his word, always be thankful. So as a gesture of our thankfulness, our gratitude, and also keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, we're going to take communion together today. Because at, the, at the, the baseline of communion, that's what it is. It is a moment of gratitude. So if you got communion when you walked in, go ahead and get that ready. If not, um, we'll have our guest services team. They'll walk around. Just raise your hand. Be patient. Have some macro through Mia. They'll make sure you get some communion in just a moment. Communion is a way for us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Remember, Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross to forgive us of our sins, not because we deserved it. We can never do anything to earn it. But Jesus, listen to this, Jesus desired us to be united with him so much that he was willing to pay the cost. The cost of unity is sacrifice. And Jesus looked at us and said, I desire to be with us. He said, I wanted to be with you. And the cost was him sacrificing his life on the cross. He says, it's worth it. You are worth it. So he paid the, paid the price, sacrificed himself on the cross so that we could be with him. But he didn't just stay on the cross. We know the story. Three days later, defeated sin and death and gives us life, life with him, a life united with him and with other believers. The bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The juice represents Jesus' blood that was shed and poured out for us. His sacrifice bringing unity and life. I'm gonna pray, and when I'm done praying, take a moment between you and your Lord and thank him for what he did so that we could be united with him. Jesus, thank you so much for paying the penalty, for paying the price, for weighing the cost and saying, yes, we are worthy. Not because we deserve it, but because you desire to be with us. Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for the grace that you give me. I pray that as we keep our eyes fixed on you, I pray we will be able to show that kind of love and grace and forgiveness to other people. We pray that your peace would be what rules our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.